Well, as you know, there are two ways to get to your vacation destination this year. You can take the quick route, which will be most likely uh, an interstate or uh, a large highway. It's the quick route. It's not always the scenic route. When you take the highway or the expressway to your destination, you always miss a lot of the beauty of the countryside and the surrounding areas that um, really have a lot of character and culture. Uh, you get to see, you, you miss a lot of the, uh, the beauty of natural landmarks and things like that. But when you take the scenic route to where you're going, it takes longer, it's a little bit more monotonous, but you see the things that you don't normally get to see. You meet the people that you don't normally get to meet. I say all that this, this afternoon because I am going to take the scenic route uh, in our time of study this week and next. Um, as you know, here at Redemption, we preach expositionally through the Bible. And we've been through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah now for many, many months. Uh, just for those of you that are visiting, it took us five years to get through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I don't oftentimes kind of take a step back and, and preach the way that, that I'm going to preach today, but I think that it's one, a background and contextual need that you and I have in understanding chapter 10 of Nehemiah, in which Jonathan just read. And it's important for us to uh, hear the Word of God preached in different ways. I prefer expositional preaching um, because I feel like it's the way in which God has revealed the text, and so we therefore preach it that way. This is going to be more of a topical um, type uh, sermon on what I would call covenant theology. Covenant theology. Now, the reason I'm doing that is because if you look in chapter 9, verse 38, let me read this verse for you. It says, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of all of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now, if you'll remember with me, in chapter 9, uh, we saw the reestablishment of the people of God in connection with the Word of God and what it said. Chapter 8 was a, uh, a sense of, of reconnecting and reestablishing the feasts and the things that they had learned from the Word of God. The Word of God instructed their hearts. And then you... You, you can't blame them for being somewhat out of the loop when they had been in captivity and they had not sat um, under the word of God in such a way as they were as they returned back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. So they were re-establishing themselves in the word. They were uh, submitting themselves to it. So in chapter 8, they begin to practice these feasts again. Uh, the Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And then in chapter 9, we see the Word of God continue to work and move in their hearts in such a way that it leads them to a, a, a national confession of sin, 
where they are, 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 are so moved by the word of God that they are confessing uh, their, their sin as a nation and in as individuals to the ways in which they had neglected the word of God. And so then now we get to chapter 10, really the end of chapter 9 and verse 10, or chapter 10, where they now enter into what we would say is a reestablishing of the covenant that they've made with God. And so right here, as uh, people in the Western world, and particularly those in in our society, uh, the idea of a covenant is kind of foreign to us. Like, we're like, what is a covenant? We hear a little bit here and there about covenant ideas, but, but I'd like to spend a few weeks, um, or at least two weeks, helping us see uh, the importance of the covenant in relationship to all of God's word. And, and so I really need you to put on your thinking caps because it is going to challenge our thinking as far as, you know, God has mentioned these covenants all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. What are these things? How do I need to understand them? How do they relate to my understanding of God and who He is and my understanding of who I am? Why is it important for the church? So in every way, we are going to look at a primer on biblical covenants. Like I said, today and uh, next week at least. Now, here's where I want us to be very careful. Throughout the history of the church, some study of covenants has left the church very disjointed. Not disjointed in their uh, fellowship with one another, but they're disjointed in their theology. In other words, you hear a lot of covenant theology taught in such a way that people walk away going, well, what do any of those concepts have to do with the other? It's, it's as if you, you know, went to, you know, uh, uh, you, you spent your Saturday or your Sunday and you traveled to the grocery store and you cr- traveled to Academy Sports and then you go to the park and you do all these things and none of those are connected. They're not related at all. And oftentimes, you, you, you might hear someone teach on the biblical covenants, and, and they're taught in such a way, in, in certain uh, belief systems, they're taught in such a way that they really have no connection. They're like, story A, story B, story C, story D, and so on. But the truth of the matter is, is that if we believe in the unity of God's Word, that God is doing one thing throughout all of history, and all of his word from Genesis to Revelation is a, a, a symmetry, is a one giant story about God's redemptive work in the world, then the covenants that are mentioned cannot be disjointed. They have to all be related. They all have to be doing one particular thing, making one direction or flowing in one direction. So I would say that the covenants are like tributaries that form one river to point to Christ. And I hope that's how you will look at them as we study uh, covenants. Now, again, as Westerners, we need to understand that a covenant is different than a contract. A covenant is different than a contract. Covenants are not contracts like we understand them. The distinction needs to be addressed so that we can know what the Word of God is communicating in these covenants that we read between God and man. And the foundational difference between a contract and a covenant is all about relationship. It's all about relationship. 
One writer, Elmer Martin, says this. He says, the occasion for a contract is largely the benefits that each party expects. Thus, for a satisfactory sum, one party agrees to supply a specific quantity of some desired product of of the other party. The contract is characteristically thing-oriented. The covenant, he says, is person-oriented and theologically speaking arises not with the benefits as the chief barter item, but out of the sole desire for a measure of intimacy. Now, again, you and I think contractually minded. You pay your car loan each week and you receive the benefit of that beautiful vehicle in your, in your or maybe not so beautiful vehicle in your driveway. The risk that you take to, to sign that contract and receive that benefit is sitting in your driveway. And church, let me tell you that we oftentimes think of our relationship with God contractually. Not about intimacy. It's about benefit. We make redemption and salvation a thing-oriented transaction. And we need to be careful with that. That we're, no, we're not really seeking after God. We're not really desiring a, an intimacy with Him and a loyalty with Him. We just want the benefits. We want God to do what His part of the bargain states on our contract. And that is a completely backwards and unbiblical way to look at our relationship with God. Therefore, the Bible speaks about God cutting a covenant with certain persons, not about the benefits, about the relationship and the loyalty to that relationship. So what we're going to look at today is that we want to understand that the covenants that God made with mankind as his image bearers all form one unified whole that point to Jesus Christ. So much so, Michael Horton says that the covenants are the architectural structure that we believe the scriptures yield themselves to. And so I want to define a biblical covenant then as an agreement that God makes with man and involves these things. Relationships, the responsibilities, the ramifications, and the reminders. And I will refer to those throughout this study and into next week. So if you had to, if you were put on the spot and you had to name all 66 books of the Bible, probably a lot of us would fail at that. We would start to sweat really profusely and, and we'd, we'd probably mutter off a majority of the New Testament and really get hung up in the Old Testament, Right? That's understandable. I would challenge you to know those. There's great little songs out there that help you learn. But could you name simply what I would say are the six covenants mentioned in the Bible? Now, some scholars debate five, and I'll say, okay, I'll give you the, I'll give you the, 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 the first answer. But can you name five of them? Here's what they are. Starting with the covenant of creation... I would say there's the covenant with Adam and Noah, those two. And then the covenant with Israel, which includes 
his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with Israel, or what we would call the Mosaic covenant or the, the Sinai covenant, and then the covenant with David, and then finally the covenant that we know as the new covenant. So those first two are categories, the covenant of creation, the covenant with Israel, six of those all together. Now, what's interesting about the covenants in this diagram, I don't know if you can see this very well, but it, the way in which the God frames the covenants is that they start out very wide and broad. Why, this is why I called it the covenant of creation. It's this wide, broad relationship that God has with all of his creation. And what we're going to focus on today is the covenant with creation with Adam and Noah. Okay? There is no specific people at this point communicated to us, even though we know that that's in the the mind and the heart of God. That he's dealing with all of what he has made with Adam, eventually with Noah. But then, as you look at this diagram that's, I think, very helpful, it begins to narrow itself down. Then he begins to select a, a, a certain people, starting with Abraham. Making Abraham a certain nation among all the nations. And then a certain king within that nation. All pointing to this crucial apex in which we get to Jesus. And with Jesus, it explodes back out into all of the world. It explodes back out in, in, corp- in encompassing not just those who follow after Christ but that the work of redemption and the, the, the purpose of redemption and the, the flow of the story of what God is doing in this world does not just affect people that follow him, but it affects all of, the, of creation, all that God has made. And I'll tie that all together for us in our study today. Now, this is a this is, again, going to be a, a, a deep study. And so I, I am by no means an expert in all things. And so I like to throw resources out your way. And so one resource that was particularly helpful to me that I would encourage you to, to look at and read is called God's Kingdom Through God's Covenant by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam. Okay? Be a very helpful resource. He's got this version, which is the concise version. And then he's got the encyclopedia version, if you want the bigger one on your shelf. Um, it looks really good on, on your shelf, if, if, you, if you're into that kind of thing. I know Adam is. All right, so we're going to start off with, uh, again, like I said, the covenant with creation through Adam and Noah. Now, again, when we think about a list of the covenants... The covenant of creation is not one on many people's list. And the reason why it's not on many people's list is because the word berit in Hebrew, that we get covenant, that we translate covenant, it's never even mentioned in the Old Testament until the story of Noah and the flood. And so scholars debate, is there really a covenant with Adam and all of creation? And I think that what's been helpful to me as I've studied through these things and studied through them is by comparing covenants as a whole, you'll see that one with Adam exists. And you'll see that not only does it exist, but it makes the purpose 
and the work of Jesus Christ make more sense. Because he is the better Adam. And he is the better Noah. And he is the better Moses and Abraham and David. All these things are pointing to Jesus. And so you would think clearly then that covenants would not start with Noah when Adam is the first man that had a relationship with God. But again, as I said, we, we actually turn to Genesis. So we're going to spend the majority of our time today in the book of Genesis. So you go ahead and turn your Bibles there, and I will do my best to make sense of these things so that you can have a better understanding of covenants. Now, as I said in Genesis chapter 6, this is the story of Noah. As we know, sin has entered into the world through Adam and Eve. And sin continually grows and grows in, in, in the descendants of Adam. So much so that we get now to the flood account where God decides in verse, chapter 6 of verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so what does God do in, in verse 7? I will blot out... I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we know that this is what God is going to do. This is a judgment on humanity and creation because of the representative that God had placed as uh, in Adam, that he was the representative head, he was the one in which represented all mankind. He not only rebelled against God in the garden, but the sin, the corruption of sin, passes on through his descendants to the point now where God decides to cast judgment upon them. And so we ask why. Well, my argument this afternoon is is because Adam and Eve broke the covenant of God in creation. Therefore, the curses ensued. Therefore, the judgment ensued because there was a covenant that existed that Adam was unfaithful to. Well, show me in Scripture, Nathan. It's not there. Show me in Scripture. Okay, I'm going to get real Hebrew on you today. Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. We see the promise to uh, Noah, I'll start in verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh which is, uh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And, shall, uh, and you shall come into the ark and you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And so we see in verse 22 that Noah did this, all that God had commanded him. Now look at verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. Now there's two things that you need to know about the Hebrew language in this verse. The language there in Hebrew, hekim, is to establish or to affirm. And berit is the word for covenant. 
So it would say, Hakim Barit, which is, I am establishing or I will affirm my covenant with you. Now that language is used throughout Scripture. There is another phrase referring to covenants, Karat Barit. Karat Barit means to cut a covenant. Now you've seen this as you've read Scripture and you're familiar with the way in which people would form a covenant from the very beginning and they would take an animal and they would sacrifice that animal and they would cut the animal in half and they would separate the, the halves and they would walk in between those two halves to signify that if I don't hold up my part of this covenant, this agreement that I've made, may my life be like these animals where the judgment of God may fall upon me or, or may you do to me what we've done to these animals because I've failed to do it. That is literally why it's called a cutting of the covenant. In Hebrew, that's karat berit. Throughout Genesis, you will see these phrases used differently. When something is already established, when it is already cut, when it is already uh, created between two parties, you will see the phrase, make a covenant. When it is already existing, and there was a pre-made uh, uh, covenant between parties, then there is a revisiting of that, which is establishing the covenant. So one cutting is karat berit, Establishing or affirming is Hakim Berit or Hakim Berit. In Genesis chapter 6, the very first instance of the word covenant, we see God in the original Hebrew language affirm an existing covenant. He does not cut a covenant. Now why does he do that? My argument is, is because this is an affirmation of the already existing covenant that God had made with, with Adam in the garden. Which is why we call this the covenant with creation. That God would so be the God of his people, that he has a relationship with Adam in creation, and that throughout Scripture... All the other covenants that are mentioned that I put on that, that, that screen there for you, every one of those people that we know as the Davidic covenant, which is David, and the Mosaic covenant, which is Moses, and the Abrahamic covenant, which is Abraham, all of these people serve as representatives between God and the blessings of that covenant. Here in our study today, that would be creation. So in other words, what I want you to see is that the covenant with creation started with Adam and was continued on and affirmed during the time of Noah. And there's a lot of parallels there that I'd like to show you. God gives Noah, like an Adam, this creative language. And think about the language that we read in the flood accounts that's very similar to the, the language that's used in creation. God orders the earth in his creative design in Genesis 1 and 2. He's springing up things out of nothing as the chaos becomes order. God's creating something out of nothing. He causes vegetation to grow, sustenance to be, sustenance to be provided in the beauty and the design and what does he tell Adam in Genesis 1 and 2? 
All these things that I've made, I've created you in my image. I want you to fill the earth and rule over it. That's the command to Adam that I believe, and my my argument is is covenantal language. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to have fellowship with you. I've set these trees in the garden to show you a symbol of this covenant, the relationship of sovereignty and authority that I have over you. I've placed you in this beautiful garden and, I, and I'm commanding you, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And not only fill the earth and multiply in the earth, but also to rule over creation. Well, the parallel then is that we see in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, which is the expanded commitment of Noah in in covenant with God, is that in after the flood waters subside in Genesis chapter 9, God gives the same commands to Noah in that same covenantal language. Be fruitful, he tells Noah, and multiply and fill the earth. He talks about the animals being fearful of him, showing a a dominion over all that God has created. He talks about the sustenance that just as Adam found from the trees of the garden, so uh, Noah and his family would find from what God had created from them. And again, he says in verse 8 of chapter 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. That's covenantal language. Stephen Wellam, in this book that, that I recommended to you earlier, he says, Man is the divine image, is servant, king, and son of God. Mankind will mediate God's rule to the creation in the context of a covenant relationship with God on, on the one hand and the earth on the other. So Adam, in entering in this covenant with God, serves not as the recipient of the blessings of the covenant by himself, but the covenant is made not only with man, but with all of creation. God makes the covenant not only with man, but with all of creation. Genesis chapter 2 says this, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is God enforcing this relationship with him and, and laying forth the terms of his authority over Adam and the commands of the covenant, the terms of the covenant, or a, as I said, the relationship and the responsibilities of the covenant. And so the language there is that God is doing what he did in Adam and making now Noah reestablishing or reaffirming that creation covenant with Noah. Look again in in Genesis chapter 9, look in verse 10 through 17. 
Behold, he says, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring and with every living creature that is with you. That is, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth that's with you. As many has come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. These are the terms of this covenant that God has made with creation. And so that same covenant, we can see that in verses 9 and 10. In verses 13, again, he says that the bow and the cloud shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. In verse 16, that God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth is a part of this everlasting covenant. That is the relationship in this covenant. God, man, and the earth. Adam serves as a mediator between God and creation. Now that should sound familiar to us as believers. That God is the, or excuse me, that Adam is the representative head, the, 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 the human representative between this, this covenant between God and creation. So that God would be the one who manifests his glory to all of his creation with Adam as his representative in the covenant. In the same way, and we will see this in a minute, in the same way that Christ is the better mediator, the better uh, covenant keeper, as the better representative of the covenant by which uh, God and creation come together. And the reason we need Jesus in all of this is because Adam was a failure and a covenant breaker. Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham failed. And all these covenants tell the story of the great effect of sin in the world. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's think about the, we looked at the, the relationships involved in this covenant, the, 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 the persons or the parties involved. That would be the God, creator of all universe, man, and creation. And then the responsibilities and ramifications, the, the, the responsibilities were simply this, that all of creation would worship and honor God, that His glory would be made known across all the landscape that He has created. And in Genesis 1 and 2, there was beauty, and there was perfection, and there was glory in, with God. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, the covenant was broken. We know that God created Adam and Eve. He put him in the garden to, to work it. He, we saw that covenant of language. But then man rebelled. Man rebelled against the covenant that God had established. And the promise of that covenant, this creation covenant, was rest in God. That was the promise. And think about it. In Genesis 1 and 2, there was perfect rest. There was perfect peace and fellowship with God. That was the, the promise that God would give 
creation, that there was, would be rest found in him. But as man and woman rebelled against God, as sin entered into the world, the promise of rest was distorted and corrupted and ruined. So that there was no longer rest between God and man, and there was no longer rest between man and creation. Think about the curse. The very curse that God made upon Adam and Eve and the serpent all reflect the brokenness of the promised rest that only can be found in God. The earth is in unrest. There's chaos. Relationships, man and man and man and woman are in unrest. There's conflict between each one of us. And ultimately there's unrest between us and God. And creation in God. So much so that we look forward to a day when all things will be made new. Well, God works in such a way where He curses the sinfulness of man. He casts judgment upon mankind. Therefore, judging the world with the flood. The flood covers the earth. It destroys all human life except for Noah and his family. Even though Noah and his family are carrying on the seed of Adam within them, they are carrying on the corruption of sin, God shows grace and mercy. He shows his faithfulness to his covenant. So he takes Adam, or excuse me, he takes Noah and his family, and they build an ark, and he, and he preserves them, and he saves them. Showing God as a faithful and loving and gracious God. And in that little or big boat, depending on if you've been to Kentucky or not, to see the ark in its scale model, in that boat you find the rest of God. A a shadow of rest. I can't imagine being cooped up for that long a period with all those animals is a restful thing, but in relationship to the storm around them, and the death and destruction and the chaos around them, within the ark, there was a shadow of God's rest because of the covenant that He had established with Noah once again. That's the beauty and the symmetry of Scripture that God has given us. And so in Genesis chapter 8, as the flood subsides... Verses 20 and 21 tell us that Noah builds an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. And in that promise, God again, in that established, reaffirmed covenant, God adds or, uh, or, or um, gives a promise in that covenant to never destroy the earth again. And there's no form of Scripture, there's no reference of Scripture to make us believe that God has or will ever do that again. Because God is a faithful God. He keeps His promises. But the beauty of of that reaffirming of the covenant is that as God created 
and then destroyed and then recreated, God gives us finally, not only do we see the, 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 the relationship of, of God and man in creation and the, the ramifications that we are to worship God and honor God and obey Him as our authority and our ruler, and that the ramifications would be if we don't do that, He will bring about His judgment, He will bring about His wrath upon those who are His our covenant breakers. We still see God's grace and mercy shown. And in that, we see a reminder. Now, not every covenant has a reminder. Not everyone, as we call it, has a sign. But many of them do. And the sign for Noah was the rainbow in the sky. Now, if you study rainbows in the, in the Old Testament, you're going to realize that there were no rainbows in the in, referenced. There's one reference in Ezekiel about a, a, a bow, but the, but the word rainbow in the Hebrew is just bow. It doesn't mean arch, it means bow. And the bow is a weapon. And so when they saw the bow in the sky, and they understood the, 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 the reference there, it's not this colorful happiness, it's a message of peace. That God had laid down His weapon of wrath, that it was a sign in which God would not judge again. He was providing a symbol of rest. This is what God was doing. So as you look to the sky and and you see a rainbow, understand that God was offering for the people a sign of the reaffirming of the covenant, showing that in Him, in a relationship with Him, in a covenant with God, we find our rest. But sadly, we see the story continue. And it's no coincidence that Adam being the, the rebel of heart and the one who broke the covenant, that the reflection of Adam's rebellion was communicated to us in his nakedness and his shame. It's no coincidence that Noah had a similar experience with nakedness and shame to remind us that both Adam and Noah's failure are the same. They all result in the curse of sin. And as we will see as we marathon and 50-yard dash through the rest of these covenants next week, we will see that the reoccurring theme that we can pull from this is simply that the covenants point to the faithfulness of God and the failures of man and the need for something better to come. Which is why the covenants are fulfilled in Jesus. Going back to our diagram. That's in the book, by the way. Very helpful. They all converge on Jesus Jesus being the better Adam and Noah. The better representative. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 tells us, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus was born fully God and fully man and therefore chiefly represents man. 
Adam was not a perfect representative. Noah was not a perfect representative in that covenant. Nor was Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon. No one represents man in the way that Jesus Christ does. There is always a failure. There is always a shortcoming. Therefore, Jesus is born in the likeness of men. Born fully God and fully man. He was born in the likeness of men, which allows him to be the better representative for us. He's also the image of the invisible God, as Colossians teaches us. Therefore, in the perfect and uncorrupted humanity and deity of Jesus, he is able to be what none of these other people could be, a covenant keeper. He keeps covenant with the Father. He's the perfect representative to rule over the earth. He's the one in which his enemies will be laid under his feet as he rules over them perfectly. So you could say that Adam is an imperfect son. Noah was an imperfect son. Jesus was the true son of God. And as the perfect king who rules perfectly, who loves perfectly, who shows loyalty to the Father and the covenant, it shows us that we need Jesus. We need him to be that for us. That his victory over sin and death was foretold back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise from the beginning that something better had to come. And so the defeat of Jesus, that Jesus accomplished on the cross, that defeat of sin and death would resonate so powerfully That creation itself would be required to be made new again. And so on that Sunday morning, when Jesus rises from the dead, the Bible tells us that at that moment, Jesus begins what we all need, new creation. This is how Jesus is the conclusion and the fulfillment of all these covenants, particularly the Adamic and the, uh, the Noahic covenant. Is that Jesus is the one that provides the new creation. The creation is corrupted with sin. The new creation is required. It's needed. Jesus rising from the dead not only defeats sin and death so that we can have spiritual forgiveness and spiritual victory. But the Bible tells us that his resurrection is the first fruits, not only for followers of Jesus, but the entire earth as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. This past week, in a very obscure week I had to I had the opportunity to preach two funerals one we all know was Adam's dad where we could celebrate and we could rejoice knowing that Fred loved Jesus and that he followed 
hard after Jesus and, 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 and there, was, there was no denying his love for Christ and, and the destination for which he belonged. No longer suffering in this world. Knowing that Jesus Christ rose from the grave as the first fruits of the new creation in Fred's life so that not only was he raised to new spiritually, but he was immediately raised to new when he went to heaven with his, with his, with his Lord. And one day with Christ coming again, bodily raised to newness when Jesus returns. But Romans 8 tells us something else too. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, Adam, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what we do not see? The promise of Jesus rising from the grave, the fulfillment of the, of the covenant of creation, is not only that we would receive the benefits, but that all of creation that's been eagerly waiting for redemption, that's been eagerly waiting for corruption to end, for death to be done away with, for the beauty of creation that's marred by conflict and, and chaos. If you've never been through a natural disaster, then we forget how simply something that's beautiful can be destroyed and become chaotic. Let that be an example of the way in which nature's fury will be undone. Sickness and death will be undone. That Jesus Christ has done all to bring about His glory so that we might see what is to come and what all He's accomplished by fulfilling the covenant for us. And so again, as I conclude, the purpose of the covenants is to see God's glory manifest in His faithfulness as He relates to those He covenants with. His loving patience and merciful character is put forth in contrast to man's sinfulness and his covenant breaking, which necessitates Jesus to come and do what we could not accomplish for ourselves. Let me take you back to Nehemiah. I know you're used to me just being in the text, so let me take us back there and be reminded of the confession that they confessed last week as we read in Nehemiah chapter 9. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. I hope that you're reminded today that God is a faithful covenant-keeping God. That throughout all of history, throughout the continual rebelliousness of humanity, God rescued Noah. God relented from killing Adam and Eve. God was gracious at Mount Sinai with Israel and their golden calf creations. God did not forgive or forget to provide the manna 
and the, and the sustenance for his complaining and grumbling people throughout the wilderness. Yes, God brought about judgment when their covenant keeping or covenant breaking ensued, but he was always a God that was faithful and gracious to forgive. And of course, we see that most importantly displayed in Jesus. And so I pray that in Jesus, you would put your hope. That in Jesus, you would see that all of Scripture points to Him. That all that's mentioned in the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature, that all these things point to what Christ came to do so that you would believe in Him and you would trust in Him as your only source of rescue. That your only source of strength as your only hope. And as you confess Jesus as your Lord, the Bible tells us that He will save you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being faithful. God, help us to understand Your Word more clearly day by day. Father, would You use the foolishness of my preaching to give people a greater understanding and appreciation for the unifying work of your great and majestic redemptive plan that we can see throughout all of Scripture. Father, it's easy for us to to lose the ball in the weeds, to be reminded that you are always and have always been doing one thing, and that is bringing about redemption through your Son. And so, Father, I pray, God, that that people would trust in you, that they would know that you are faithful, no matter what scenario or situation that they're in in this moment, in their own personal lives, Father, that they would know that you are a faithful God. And that any doubts that they may have, they would turn to Scripture and they would see your faithfulness on every page and they would know about your forgiveness through Jesus and they would believe and give you glory. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.